This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Ian Barker is the Director of Coaching Education for United Soccer Coaches Association, formerly known as the NSCAA. And I hope I said that right. United Soccer Coaches Association. Either way, Ian schools me on how to say that during the actual interview. Uh, After moving to the United States in 1987, which is also the year I was born, sorry Ian, he made his way through the American soccer gauntlet. And he ended up with jobs at various collegiate programs, as well as the ODP program, and a lengthy stint as the Director of Coaching and Player Development for the Minnesota Youth Soccer Association. Now, Ian has landed himself about as close to the top of the food chain as you can get in this country while still being outside of USSF. It's a very interesting spot to be in, and Ian did not shy away from some of the questions I asked about navigating the fractured landscape that we have here. Some of the topics that we touched on were changes to the USSF curriculum and how that has made an impact on what his association does. Uh, I asked him if he feels responsible at all for the U.S. men's national team not qualifying for World Cup 2018. Uh, I asked him a little bit about how two organizations can compete yet still work together at the same time. And I think he has uh, some interesting perspective about that. And I also asked him why he thinks perspective is a crucial ingredient for true development. It was an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with Ian. And towards the end of the conversation, him and I both agreed on one thing. And it was the fact that coaches like yourself, I'm assuming that you're a coach if you're listening to this coaching podcast, uh, that coaches like yourself need to get out there and have conversations with other coaches and to watch other people train their teams and to grow their own network and to seek out those educational experiences. And one of the best experiences that I've had uh, that has absolutely helped me develop into a far better coach was actually going and watching Brian Clyburn train his teams. I started making trips down to Fullerton to watch Brian and his teams train when the kids were just little kids. And now those little kids are actually on the verge of turning pro. And at that time when I was going down there, I had no idea that what I was watching was literally the making of the 343 coaching education program. And I sincerely mean that. Like I was sitting on the sideline and there was a big humongous tripod or high pod sitting right next to me. I had no idea what that footage would ultimately turn into. So looking back, it's kind of cool to see what it's become. And if you would like to learn more and to experience the coaching education program and see exactly what went into the making of one of this country's best youth teams starting from the time that they were little kids, U10s, until now as the guys are preparing to jump to the professional game, you can visit 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 34 and 3, coaching, all spelled out, .com. And that's where you can find all of the benefits of becoming a 343 coaching program member 
or if you don't know anything about us and you are new to 343, you can just sign up for our free program, which is a great place to start and get to know us and know what we are all about. So those are your two options when you check out 343coaching.com. All right, with that, we will get into today's episode with Ian Barker. Enjoy. Um, yeah, so I, I always, I always make sure I want to ask us if there's anything that's off limits or, or any topics that you either do really want to talk about or, or want to avoid as well. Well, um, obviously what I'm most active in currently is coaching education, which is, is difficult right now because of us soccer's new programming, um, and the historical relationship between my organization and them, but coaching education, including UEFA, that's kind of what I do mainly. Um, I've got extensive experience in coaching college on the men's side, and I'm still very actively involved with ODP. And then I do spend a lot of my time trying to maintain relationships between agencies, which sort of compete. So when you look at Christian Labors and U.S. club and my colleagues in U.S. youth, um, how do you get them all to the table? How do you do what's in the best interest of the American game? Um, if your audience is, you know, is a little more popular and you want to talk about Champions League and World Cup and MLS and English Premier League, I'm happy to chat about that. So it's whatever you want to go with it, no, uh, wherever you think it, I can provide value. No, I think the the majority of this audience are youth soccer coaches, and so they're looking for for information on how they can either improve. And actually, I, I have I wrote this down as a note because you you tweeted out something recently. Uh, it's like what what do youth coaches want? Like what are coaches looking for? And you listed off like five or six things, and I thought that was a super mm-hmm. interesting tweet. So I wanted to I wanted to bring that up. But um, yeah, well, one of yeah. the things that I've I've come to think about recently is. Everybody's running around saying player development, player development. And, um, you know, the needs of the 0.1% of 1% that are going to play for Man City or LA Galaxy, they have very specific player development needs. But the vast, vast majority of our kids need child development needs, have child development needs, which ultimately will be human development needs, if you're with me. So... We talk about periodization and we talk about this and we talk about that. But the simple fact is we would like to get more productive young people to become more productive adults. So, for example, if our parents scream at the referee, but we see a value in soccer as teaching respect for authority, we've given kids really bad messages. Um, If we as parents or coaches are always recruiting and doing different tryouts, we're suggesting to kids that loyalty and commitment doesn't matter uh, in pursuit of winning an extra state cup. So it's that type of stuff that really gets my juices flowing because there's a lot of people out there who pretend to be experts about what kids need and how the game should go. And the simple fact is we're using this raw material of children and, you know, I, I mean, if you listen to Landon Donovan, his his story of the way his mother treated him was one of great humanity and decency. And he turned out to be you know, one of the very best soccer players this country's ever seen. So you don't have to 
follow all of these gurus that you see on Twitter and, and you got to do this and you can't do two sports and you can't play high school and you can't go here and you can't go there. Because I personally think that's hugely damaging to our society uh, as well as individual kids. I'm curious to get your to get your thoughts on how the people that do want to produce the players for Man City or the players that do want to produce the the players for LA Galaxy or you know like you kind of said like that one percent of player how mm-hmm. th- those people in some regard ha- have almost been been vilified and mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of told like hey like you know almost almost like what you just described like hey the majority of our kids are are not going to make it and we need to we need to turn you know 99% of these kids into just good human beings right but there mm-hmm. is a place for those people to operate that want to be professional coaches that want to produce professional players and and it's very hard for people like that to operate when you know the majority of the people that are controlling the the conversation and and the education and the pathways don't have those same goals, right? Or, or don't have those yep. same ideas. So how, no, how do I mean, you we, battle? Yeah. That? So, so it's really, I mean, it's a good point because, you know, we've made our, we've made our jurisdiction against heading in the game. Um, it's going to be really difficult for this country to produce world-class players if they can't really begin heading the ball meaningfully until they're 13. I think that's going to be a problem. Um, now you would, you could say America took the lead on the heading initiative, um, but if you want to develop world-class players, you have to give them similar training opportunities to people around the world. I think um, I think MLS is I think the MLS academy structure, when it, it continues to be very broad-based, starting young, getting kids into that environment, paying for kids to be in the environment, I think is hugely positive for the development of an elite player in this country. Um, so, you know, Jalen Lindsay came on for sporting this weekend and he's 18 and they just Eric Palmer Brown's now with Man City and he came through Sporting's Academy when he was 14, 15, 16. So a really well run environment by a guy like Peter Vermees, which is not always the most warm fuzzy because Peter Vermees and his staff are strong people, but there is absolutely a place for that. And um uh, but I think the the key to it is personally I think in our this is the difference in our culture. If a young man in, and I'll just go to Great Britain, if a young man in Great Britain wants to be a professional footballer, more often than not, they come from a certain class, certain education background, that they put their eggs into that basket and they chase the dream. And if they don't make it, um, maybe their career path is what it would have been had they not shown some soccer talent. The challenge in our country is if we're telling kids not to do college and we're telling in an academy 400 kids don't do college, um, and only one or two of them are going to make it to the first team, the implications in the American culture, I think, are far greater, far more damaging. So we have to be a little bit careful and make sure that we're, we're managing this environment in, this, in, the, in the right way for the American public. I guess I'm still curious about like how that, that person, so you know, uh, a coach that wants to you know, pursue, and, and maybe, maybe we can just direct this exactly to coaches too, or specifically yeah. to coaches, um, like a coach that wants to, to work in that super competitive environment and, and that to produce those, those high performing players, getting, 
getting vilified. And so I'll, I'll, I'll preface with this too. So yesterday I just released a podcast that talked about how the word winning has been almost kind of eliminated from the conversation because and, and almost been replaced with development. So at some point along the way, you know, we stopped wanting to win and, yep. and I think that has hurt us. And so I actually just posted a question in a, in a Facebook group that has a handful of coaches in it and said, Hey, like, you know, at some point in the last five, 10 years, we stopped wanting to win. And we also just missed out on the 2018 world cup. Is there any coincidence there? And I said, give me your first reaction. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if, if those two are, are correlated or not, but I, I think so. No, I think they are. I think winning has become a dirty word um, as a, as a, almost a response to environments where we've been too obsessed with winning at all costs, which is the recruiting and some of the other negative behaviors you see in youth sports. Um, I think, you know, you look at MLS clubs, they, the, there are elements of the development academy, which I know some of the MLS clubs are resisting. So don't tell us what formation we have to play. Don't tell us how many minutes we have to play people because we're trying to develop players for Sporting Kansas City or Rail Salt Lake or Dallas. So we don't want the uh, restrictions that are applied by the development academy. Um, and a good friend of mine, Kelly Finley, was uh, was the coach at North Carolina State and Butler. He's currently uh, he's currently out of college coaching, but he used to get really tired of the showcase events because he felt there was no consequence on the game. So you never saw the players at the edge of their competitive challenge. So you know whether you're an amateur player like I was or a semi-pro or a pro, we all know there are some games, exhibition games, games where you win five nil, where it's kind of nice to coast a little bit. But most of us, most of us, um, if we com were competitive in any level, remember the games which were one nil either way, and you felt like you got really pushed to the edge of your game. And I don't know that we see enough of that in our culture now, because to your point, the backlash against winning. Yeah. I I want you to tell me a little bit about yourself, and then I have I have some other topics that I want to get to, and we can come back to what we just talked about, but. Um... Yeah, t tell me a little bit about yourself and, and exactly what you do and, and describe your, your role at, is it USC? Yeah. Is that what you guys call it? Or do you guys... Do no, you guys... no, no, you've got you to say it. you got to say United <laughs> Soccer Coaches. Um, got it. And then we, then we just call it the association after that. Got um, it. So the role I, I serve here is um, the development of coaching courses. Uh, now, of course, online coaching courses um, from three-hour in-person courses all the way up to a two-year master's degree with Ohio University. So trying to offer the broadest-based coaching education, um, be it in-person, be it uh, online or blended. Uh, obviously, the convention is a big part of that. Uh, also collaborating with U.S. Soccer in their coaching education initiatives and then also helping some of our American coaches get across to UEFA and do badges in UEFA. Um, so it's 24-7 uh, coach education uh, in multiple formats from the most basic grassroots coach all the way up to a person doing a master's degree. Can Can you talk a little bit about the differences between the association and other coaching education platforms that are available? Yeah. Um, so um, the history is, real quick thumbnail on the history. 
U.S. soccer coaching education approximately 1973. And it trucked along quite nicely for about 10 years. And then um, under the influence of some foreign coaches, the courses became much, uh, much more rigorous. They became two weeks long. There was an expectation of playing ability. Um, you couldn't get in them if you weren't a former pro. So the people that were teaching the U.S. soccer curriculum who were American felt that they needed to put an American delivery piece to it. So 73 U.S. soccer in 83 NSCAA, and they were basically the same content. They were just delivered with a different spirit. So the spirit of the Federation was very pass fail and the spirit of NSCAA was very, very collegial. They kind of trucked along in that general way uh, up until about 2015 um, when U.S. soccer and NSCAA separated their pathways so you couldn't jump back and forth. And now in the last three or four years, uh, U.S. soccer has gone a completely different direction with its coaching education programs. Coaching education for us is not a commercial product. It's really a member service. It does cost but it doesn't really impact our financial bottom line. So we're not like Corva and some of the other ones. We operate more like an FA, uh, but of course, nowhere else in the world are there two national bodies delivering coaching education. It only happens in America. And it's because mainly because US soccer didn't have professional soccer. So it was doing a lot of other jobs and kind of, as you know, outsourced player development, outsourced coaching education, outsourced a lot. They let other people do it because they were so busy running the men's and women's national teams. Was that breakup between the two? Was that an ugly breakup or was it just mutual when, it's a good, when, th yeah. when things split ways in 2015? Uh, oh, so 2015 under David Chesler is when U.S. soccer said we want the sovereignty back of our pathway. Um, so up to up to, so very briefly, but I'm happy to cover it in the very happy to cover it in depth, if, depending on your amount of time. Go for but it. Basically, um, February 2015, previously, um, our national award would let you take the C. Our advanced national would let you take the B. And our premier qualified you for eight CUs for your A license. Overnight, U.S. soccer closed that relationship. Um, but the challenge, in my opinion, was they didn't grandfather it. So they didn't say to all the people that had those awards, okay, you've got one year to transfer across and then the pathway is completely closed. They closed the pathway immediately. So what happened was there were people who had their premier license. So they'd done multiple years of coaching education, hundreds of hours, big expense, and they weren't even able to coach their state cup teams. And then a mum or dad who had just done their F license was more qualified. So the implementation of the split was, in my opinion, was really quite poor. I believe that our, our federation, much like the NEFA in Europe or another in another continent, should have a sovereign pathway. So I have no objection at all with US soccer saying we are the singular pathway and all of these other products may or may not fit in down the line. Um, and we have a good relationship with U.S. soccer, but um, it was mainly the implementation of it, not the spirit of it. Yeah, it's it's interesting as an outsider kind of looking at, at things un, or watching things unfold and not knowing exactly what's happening, but 
yeah, it's like all of a sudden there's this massive breakup, but then you guys are kind of all one big happy family again when the convention rolls around. Like there's, you know, the U.S. soccer events and MLS is hosting their uh, their draft there. It's like, you know, this is really confusing. Yeah, I think um, I'm, a, I'm a member of U.S. soccer, of course. I um, My organization's a member of U.S. soccer. I have my A license on my wall. I did all of my U.S. soccer badges before I did the NSCAA uh, badges. So I, I like to think... Um, but I'm a U.S. soccer coach and have been for 31 years. I think what my organization, um, because we don't register players, tends to be Switzerland. So we try to be <laughs> friendly with everybody. But in the world of player registration, um, in the competitive world, where now we have an academy program run by U.S. soccer that competes with its own members of U.S. youth and U.S. club, um, there are greater tensions. Um, clearly, our federation sees itself as the uh, alpha and omega of soccer in this country, and I can make the case they should see themselves as that, and they should, they should be able to cover all those bases. I think the challenge for our federation becomes that we have a very strong MLS uh, uh, program, both professional, the management of players and, and youth players. We have the Women's League, and then we have this myriad of youth organizations and then a coaching education membership organization like the NSCAA, now United Soccer Coaches. So it's a lot of herding cats for the federation. And sometimes it's almost impossible for the federation to be Switzerland. It has to be sometimes big brother. It just has to be. And um, I think the, 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 you know, from a, from a non, from a non-employees point of view, um, you just hope that U.S. soccer is acting in the best interests of everybody in the game. Um, and sometimes that can be difficult to do, or it can be difficult to see it's being done. I'd love to get your opinion on how the way that U S soccer has decided to go with their coaching education. And if that has impacted the way that, that your association has, has decided to structure any of their new offerings, or is there still any type of attempt to offer an equivalency or, or some type of, uh, you know, similar experience between the two, or now is it just two completely different experiences? Good, a great question. So U.S. soccer has made it possible for my organization, U.S. club, uh, AYSO, say the amateurs, to deliver U.S. soccer education, which was previously something that only U.S. youth soccer did. So all of those, you know, all the state associations offered the grassroots and the E's and the D's. So U.S. soccer has opened that up. So out of my office, we offer um, and we deliver U.S. soccer courses where people want them because some people want to get on the track to get to the D. Um, some of the philosophical underpinnings of U.S. soccer coaching education for the grassroots, we have we we had and we will continue to have a different philosophy based more off of U.S. youth soccer's national youth license. Um, and that approach to grassroots coaching, um, U.S. soccer has gone a slightly different way, uh, quite European inspired. And currently, Zach Crawford, Frank Tishan would be a couple of the references to to explain that um, that that this this method and this method is based on experience and uh, realism and holistic and play practice play. Um, so they, there's some new buzzwords and some new content there. 
So our content is is hasn't changed. Um, I would argue that U.S. soccer has changed more. So there is more differentiation between the products now, which I think is probably a good thing. But, but what happens when when somebody contracts you to do to do one of their courses? So do, what, um, what what version do they get? So uh, that's a great question. Again, um, Tampa Bay United, George Fotopoulos um, is the director of coaching there. He uh, wants his coaches to have U.S. soccer grassroots courses. Um, and some of his coaches want to go on to the D. So they have to have the U.S. soccer courses. George chooses to um, manage those through my office as opposed to through Florida Youth Soccer Association uh, because of his relation with Florida Youth Soccer Association and U.S. club and so on and so forth. So we deliver those um, because that's the curriculum and we honor the curriculum. Um, and I'm not going to sit there and sort of put my hand over the badge and make a, a sideways comment because I work for U.S. In that case, I'm working for U.S. soccer. Um, and and the bottom line is, if you want to get to the D and the C and the B and the A, you better understand this um, DNA, if you will, or this thread that now runs through all of U.S. soccer coaching education. Um, at the same time, if the club says to me, you know, we've got mainly grassroots coaches, uh, we don't want to get it, we don't want to have them register ind individually into the DCC. We're looking for more activities. We're looking for more field work. We're looking for less underpinning educational philosophy and more content. Then I think our courses are probably uh, more in that space right now. This is this is interesting to me because this is now I, I didn't and I honestly was joking when I when I mentioned this on Twitter, but you're or I'm starting to see how coaches can get different types of experiences while taking the same course, I guess is, is a good way to put it. So, you know, you have everybody that is required to take the USSF D, but the USSF D might come in many different flavors. And I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see how this might get confusing for people on a national scale that think that they're getting the same product, but really they, they might not be, I don't know if that's the right way to evaluate that. Though. Yeah. Well, one of the problems is they're called the same thing. So <laughs> we had we had uh, we had written and put out the 4v4 77 9v9 11v11 diplomas and then as recently as this january u.s soccer unveiled their 4v4 77 9v9 11v11 grassroots licenses so um we just issued um in the uh, united soccer coaches soccer journal the entire issue was dedicated to trying to educate and help coaches just to what's available to them um because it is it is quite confusing. Um, I think the key, wherever you do it and whatever you do with it, is to make it accessible. Um, and sometimes all of us as organizations have made it difficult. So whether the registration process is too difficult, whether the content is not relevant enough, um, whether there's just not enough offerings you know, available or the space is limited, um, or there aren't enough instructors in an area. So, you know, trying to get coach education when you live in Montana is probably more challenging when you live in, in New Jersey. Um, as far as what you take away from it, I will say this. In my opinion, there are three key ingredients. One, you have to have halfway decent content. And all of the content in the American marketplace is more than halfway decent, uh, wherever it comes from, in my opinion. Then you have to have decent instructors, although all instructors will inevitably have their own personalities. 
and then you have to have open-minded candidates. So the big, the single biggest negative in the experience for the candidate is the candidate's resistance to the content or their failure to be open-minded. Um, yes, you can occasionally get a rogue instructor, and yes, occasionally the content may not, you know, be 100% applicable or relevant or helpful. But I would say that um, the candidates have a big responsibility to derive value out of it whenever they can. I really enjoyed the the very first, you know, 20 minutes of, of the C course that I'm in currently, mm-hmm. because the, the instructor, one of the first things that he said was, uh, not all of this is going to uh, apply to you. Not not all of this is going to be value, valuable to you. So take whatever works and, and keep it. And if something doesn't work, just throw it away. And so that kind of sets the stage for, for how how you're going to receive the course and, and kind of puts it on your shoulders. You know, if yeah. it, I think one of my, my biggest gripes, and, and you can put me, you can probably put me in a certain camp when it comes to how I receive the coaching education, but is, is the bang worth the buck? And so like is, is taking, you know, a week off of work or eight days off of work and, and paying $2,000 to, you know, be there just in the course, plus all the other expenses that comes along with it. Like, can I, can I see the value in, in going through that experience and paying that versus what I'm receiving? And, and so it's not really the, like, is the content valuable? I think that there's, there's value in the content, but is it that valuable is yeah. maybe where, where my brain it, goes? No, it's, it's really good observation. So Clearly, for those of us that um, want to make a living in the game, I think it's uh, incumbent upon us to get through a set of coaching education for sure. So um, whether it's whether it's a requirement or not, I, I don't think it's enough just to have come from a foreign country and therefore you can coach or, you know, you're in a, you've been in America and you've seen 3000 soccer games and you've coached 3000 soccer games. So therefore, you know what you're doing. Um, it's kind of like watching ER on TV. I can watch a hundred episodes, but I'm not going to take anybody's spleen out. Um, so, so at that level, I think it's I think it's a requirement. I can tell you on my B license a long, long time ago, I went only to get the award, and I had a miserable time. When I went back to get my A license, I went to get the award because it was for my my profession, but I went in to learn as well. Um, I think that um, certainly what you're talking about with the expense of the C is a great expense for a C-level coach. So if your ceiling of your coaching education, the needs is a C to coach in your state cup, um, that is a big expense of time and money. And of course, many of the coaches that do the C are very gracious about giving that. Others of them, it it can be a bit of a stress and a bit of a head scratcher. what I like, though, what I will say I like, where I think there is great value, um, and there's a couple of different things. What I like about the C, which I taught, I taught one just recently, and we have another one going on in Kansas right now. Um, I like the use of the DCC because you can get, as an instructor, I get to know the candidates really well before I even physically see them. So I like that, and I like the development period that you're probably in, where you're doing self-reflection. Um, and turning in some homework assignments that are hopefully getting evaluated. On our side, what we did was we shortened the courses um, to save money and time, but then we deliver the final assessment. We'll bring, we'll send a coach out to you. So 
a month after you've done your national advance national premiere with us, uh, we will send an individual out to work with you for an hour with your players in your field, uh, in your training facility. So there are there are things that are being done to make the education more relevant, more contextual. Um, and uh, and um, so I think we're trying to get there for sure. What is what does that cost you on 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 the, your association side to send somebody out to to evaluate? And I'm I'm curious because of of what the potential reach could be with that. There has to be a, a limit of, of how many times you could offer somebody to to fly out and evaluate coaches. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So the way it's worked for us has been hugely positive. It has been um, logistically challenging, but it's been hugely positive. So um, we took two nights off of the length of the course. So previously it was a six night course. Now it's a four night course. So five days, four nights. So it fits into a sort of a Monday, Friday, you get your weekends back because most of the coaches are not full-time professional coaches, um, which is true on the US soccer awards. It's certainly true on our awards. So now you're only giving up one weekend or maybe no weekends. We didn't change the cost of the course though. So we saved money on your room and board and we've now put that money towards your assessment. We use people with A's, B's, advanced nationals or premiers that live within your zip code, if we will. Um, but now we've been able to go and get tons, tons more coaches who have gone through the awards connected with people going through them. So instead of there being this sort of, there are 10 crusty old guys that are, control all of coach education for US <laughs> soccer or for United Soccer coaches. Now everybody <laughs> is potentially a mentor and role model or support person to people within their club. So we've had clubs where the DOC, we've paid the DOC to evaluate his or her own coach. We've had um, some great examples. So Shellis Heinemann, formerly of Dallas, uh, FC Dallas, now at Grand Canyon, um, he showed up at a grassroots coaches session. So you've got this grassroots coach. I can't, I don't know, but let's say they've got sort of 12 year old classic three boys and that's the session they're doing. And they get Shellis Heinemann to show up and work with them out on the West coast, Jerry Smith, uh, head coach of Santa Clara went out and did a session with the coach. So just these wonderful opportunities to make more value, because as you know, having probably done the D, you, your final assessment used to be somebody following you around with a clipboard for 20 minutes while you're using the other candidates as the players. So we flipped that model and said, no, let's go and watch, watch you for an hour and help you and talk to you and chat with you and go for a cup of coffee afterwards. And let's watch you with whatever it is you coach, because you might coach college females, division one, or you might coach under 12 boys in rep. Because another challenge in this country is that our candidate pools are so diverse um, outside of probably the U.S. soccer pro license. Um, you're still getting grassroots mum and dad coaches and college coaches in the same course. So you've got to think about how to make it relevant for all of them. Now, U.S. soccer does something very similar, but they do that at a different point, though. So, so they send somebody out to evaluate. Is it starting at the? Is it starting with the A license, or is it starting with the B license, where where they've begun to to evaluate in your home environment? Yeah, um, they definitely do it at the pro because the pro is a very big deal. Um, but I believe they're doing this at the A license. So one of the assessments, or one of the one of the periods between the development period uh, is, is the in-person happens on your site. I know that happens in the A, 
I'm not sure if it's going to happen with the with the B. You know, the challenge with that country is it's just so big. So um, my colleagues in, and you would appreciate this being in the middle of your sea, my colleagues in Belgium, the sea happens every Thursday night on a national basis because the longest drive is like 150 kilometers <laughs> to, a, to the center of the country. Um, as you know, we did the we did the sea here for eight days. We had people flow in from Georgia and Louisiana and they've got hotel expenses then they go home they got to fly back for a weekend that's a that's a tough tough one for a sea license coach so anytime i think we can cut down on physical time away and money i think it's our responsibility to do it i can't speak for us soccer in this regard but obviously they're financially well healed enough that coaching education does not necessarily need to be a revenue driver in our my organization it is it is part of our overall revenue piece but relative to convention, relative to membership, relative to awards and rankings, it is not a um, it is not a revenue leader by any means. Um, I'm also curious, and I and I think I know the answer, but are your courses for the most part still residential? Um, the three, well, the four, excuse me, the uh, national, advanced national, premier, and advanced national goalkeeper are conducted in two ways, a residential setting, which we set up to become a college campus, and or you can do it over two long weekends. And we do a ton of um, ton of work in, especially in New Jersey and New York, where the professional trainers would like to get coach education, but they're working during the week a lot. So we do a Friday through Sunday uh, over two long weekends, and you can still get your 40 hours in. So we do offer it in that fashion. And it's half the price um, because we don't have to worry about the room and board. Yeah, I'll, I'll share a funny story with you. So at the first meeting for our C course, this guy, I should, I should probably not say his name, ah, whatever. His name's Casey, uh, shows up and, and he was the last one to arrive before the lecture started and he's got his, his bags with him. He flew in from Canada. And so he's going up to the, to the girl, uh, to give him his name and, and he's like, yeah, so like, where, where, where can I put my bags? I know I'm a little bit late. And she's like, yeah, just take them to your seat with you. And he's like, no, like, you know, where, where do I check in my bags? And he showed up to the, to the C course thinking that it was residential. He, yep. he saw the price tag and he, and he had already done the, the, I think he had done some courses with you guys in the past and he had that experience of, you know, for this price, I got this product. And so he showed up for the, the first day of the C course in, in California, no place to stay, nothing. It was, it was a hilarious experience and we ended up just roasting him the entire week for it. But yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I, uh, I want to, I want to change gears and, and there is something that I really, I, I did want to, to get your opinion about. And I, I don't know if this is, is something that uh, has been talked about yet. I, I, I haven't heard it in, in any podcast that I've listened to. I haven't seen it talked about on Twitter at all, but obviously the NSCAA or, or, uh, United soccer coaches has been a big part of soccer coaching education over the course of many, many, many years here in the United States. So when something like the U.S. men's national team failing to qualify for the World Cup happens, do you or do any do anybody, does anybody from your organization feel in any way responsible for that? I do, personally, as somebody who's coached for 31 years in this country, college, ODP, Pretty much every every level up to MLS. Um, 
and it's I, I'm really grateful that you asked the question because I think this is a discussion that needs to happen when people are throwing uh, the recent article that was really tough on Klinsman. Um, it's doing the rounds right now, um, and it's been tough on Galati and tough on Bruce Arena. Uh, that's great. So we can all throw stones one way. Um, 30 seconds after the defeat to Trinidad, Taylor Twelman came on live on TV and he was really angry and he said, we are all responsible for this in some way. And I would, I would largely agree with him. So if you've been a club and you've run to keep the doors open financially and you've run tournaments, which are asking kids to play six games in two and a half days and it's attritional, then you are part of the problem. If you are a professional trainer who's making good money and you're doing dog and pony show camps, you're part of the problem. If you are um, an academy director who thinks they know better and cuts players after five minutes and then doesn't track their pro process, uh, progress, you're part of the issue. If you are an American fan and you don't know anything about NWSL or MLS, I could argue you're part of the problem too. So it's a collective failure. It's not down, obviously, it's down to the 11 guys on the field, the subs and the coach at the highest level. But we as an American soccer culture and population and community should always be striving to do better. doesn't mean it's going to be right all the time, but we've all got to make a little bit more effort when we can, um, whether that's get our kids out you know, make an extra drive to take our kids to an MLS game or support our local USL team. Or if you're a highly paid guy like me, maybe you go and do some pro bono coaching every once or twice in the inner city or at a, um, for a park and rec or for a boys and girls club and help young people that don't get access to coaching and don't get access to youth programming, bring it to them because you can make enough money and you can give up two hours a evening. So I think um, I think we're all responsible in terms of pure coach education. I don't think that's the issue. I, 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 I tell you this, if you look at somewhat well-trained U.S. grassroots coaches, they perform really, really, really well against their foreign counterparts. So I don't think coaching, coaching education per se is 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 on the top of the top 10 list for me, in my opinion. And certainly the new U.S. soccer courses are getting more like UEFA, which is the gold standard. So, yes, we've addressed it with this new programming with U.S. soccer. But there's a lot more environmental things than just co-ed or just player development or just the MLS. There's a lot more than that. One of the things that I come back to quite often, and I, I agree with you that, that coaching education is not in you know on, on the top of my list of, of problems in uh, in the landscape right now, but I think it's the opportunities for coaches to kind of display their, uh, their capabilities and to kind of climb, yeah, to, to climb the ladder based on, uh, their performances. And so it's like when you, when you bring this, when you bring this up on Twitter, it, it's, it's very divisive. It's very, um, it's, it's very polarizing, I think, but you know, not having the opportunity for a, a coach to really show his work or her work and, and climb the ladder based on merit is, in my opinion, one of the most disappointing parts of, of this country. And yeah. 
I I struggle with with why that isn't more of the getting more attention when it comes to this this you know conversation that is still happening you know eight months removed from from our failure which I think is hilarious that we're still talking about you know things like that but um, yeah that's 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 where I go Ian and and, and it's yeah. like no I see that but look at so if you look at I don't want to say but look, looking at say Great Britain um, and if you follow the the Premier League and the Championship there is a a, a merry-go-round of a certain group of coaches Poulos Allardyce uh, Pardue. Um, there's a number of them that uh, Moyes right now. So not some of the foreign imports, but some of the British coaches who seem to have a job regardless of their competitive relevance or success. They just keep getting cycled. Um, MLS is a lot smaller and you can still see a relatively, I mean, it's very, very small, but there is also, there's some real significant impediments to getting into the, into the MLS. Um, so, all over the world, it's sometimes who you know. It's sometimes maybe what you've done, which isn't necessarily relevant to your job. So uh, Brad Friedel at, at, um, at the Revolution perhaps hasn't got the coaching chops that would merit that position, but he certainly has the playing background and the gravitas as an American soccer personality. And he will, he will obviously learn more and more as a coach, but he is an MLS head coach. Um, what I would suggest to young people that would like to be coaches and make it their full-time gig, if you can afford it, um, you sacrifice. You sacrifice uh, money and you go and start um, with, uh, you know, probably in, probably try to get into some of the academy clubs where you won't be paid as much as you would be in some of the grassroots recreational clubs. Um, because if you follow the money, some of the higher um, higher prestige jobs in the academy structure in some of the bigger competitive clubs is not as well compensated as if you're a division three college coach in some cases. Um, you know, we work a lot on career pathways and I think there are, I think, you know, as Americans, we like to think that everything is achievable. Well, I'm not going to be a center in the NBA, unfortunately. So it's kind of silly just wanting that. However, if the coach in this country has a reasonable objective. I think there are ways to get there. Um, I will say though, and this is you know perhaps to your point, networking um, is huge, and that's why the convention I do think is a valuable thing because, and, and courses like the one you're on, because those 24 other people on that course with you, some of them will be career opportunities for you potentially, and vice versa. So I think, I think, um, I think there are opportunities, but I think it is it is hard sometimes to break through the old guard network. And it's certainly the case in coaching education because uh, I have a lot of um, traditional coaches, educators, and they're not super excited about seeing young guys come through and take some of their employment opportunities. You mentioned that you guys work on career pathways quite a bit. And I'm wondering if you can maybe you know take a second and think about some of the most common problems or or common things that that you see when when you maybe sit down with a coach and try to plan out a career pathway, you know, yeah. that could that could either be you know common roadblocks or um, you know just co- common goals that people share. Yep. Um, one of the things at the at the far end is that a coach has to understand that if if he or she wants to continue to grow, you probably have to develop administrative uh, skill sets 
uh, communication skill sets and deal with increasingly bigger and bigger issues that don't pertain to the training environment and the game environment. So there are very few examples, I can't actually really think of any, where, the, where you get the full money, the full team, you get everything you want, and all you do is coach the team and coach the trainings. There aren't many environments like that. So that's, that's one of the challenges, um, because most of us still love being on the field and coaching players, but that's not, you have to, you have to develop more, more skills. Um, one of the big challenges for, for young coaches when they start off is how much commitment or limitation they've saddled themselves with. So if, for example, they're already uh, in a family, so they have financial responsibilities, it makes them less geographically mobile. Um, makes them less uh, less inclined to take a lower paying job or a better opportunity to let's say work with a better mentor. So sometimes um, the coach has put some, and it could be geographical limitations too. So you know they don't want to come off the west coast or they don't want to come off of the east coast or whatever it is. Um, and then um, I will also I also think that coaches sometimes listen too much to other coaches. So you could take two young coaches, two young female coaches who have very similar backgrounds, physically look the same, play at the same levels, have the same badges. But one of them um, has a certain personality, has a certain skill set. So if she listens to what her friends' experiences were and models off of them, she'll probably have a less successful experience as if she takes her friend's experience but then contextualizes it because we're so driven with little bite-sized piece of information in social media and all this other stuff that we don't sit down long enough to take an inventory of our own skill set. Um, and then how do you acquire that skill set? So I would, I would often tell a young coach, maybe don't go to a coaching badge for a couple of years because you've done some. Maybe take a trip overseas. Maybe go to the convention. Um, maybe ask if you can go down and watch your MLS train on the open training days. Um, but coaches they too often coaches have some sort of cookie cutter approach based on what they read or what they heard another guy or girl did and they haven't contextualized it and made their own um their own personalized career development plan you mentioned something that's that's super important to my development path not uh, and again I'm, i i always preface with this i'm not some you know, great coach or, or anything to write home about. But one, one of the most influential parts of my coaching development was actually getting a chance to go watch high level training sessions. And, and one thing that I believe coaches are afraid of, or maybe not afraid of, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but they just, it, it's kind of an unknown is like, how do I approach, you know, the, my local college coach about you know, going to watch a training session or going higher up in that. How do I approach an MLS coach and ask him, Hey, can I come watch a training session? And it, people would be very surprised at how accessible those types of things actually are. And yeah. I try to, I try to encourage people as, as much as possible. I mean, this, this podcast, for example, you were very accessible. All I had to do was ask, uh, and, and you've been you know more than gracious with your time, but most people uh, are, are the same. And so getting, getting a chance in, to go watch, you know, a, a youth national team camp or going to watch your local or semi-local, you know, professional team, um, is, is not out of the question. I think more people should be, should be knocking on those doors if they're not. Yeah. So 100, 100% agree. Um, 
Well, it's kind of interesting because it you, you drive me into sort of deep reflection and philosophy. But basically, in the 31 years I've coached here, I would count on less than one hand the number of enemies, real enemies I have in the game, because we're still a relatively small community and we have to be paying it forward and supportive when we can. So there will always be coaches that, that, that want to keep it a secret and be the guru and the Svengali. But to your point, the majority of coaches are more than willing to share. They actually kind of get turned on a little bit if somebody says, can I come and watch your high school practice <laughs> or your college practice? Um, and we have a program that uh, was an initiative of Charlie Schlegel, who's had extensive college and youth coaching careers. And when he was our president, we started a thing called Open Training. So twice a year, we invite our college members to set up a day and then we publicize for them that the public can go down and watch. So our current president is Leslie Gallimore at the University of Washington. She picked a day in her preseason. We publicized it and anybody in the greater Washington area, the Seattle area, was able to go down and Leslie talk to them and watch the, the Husky women do a training session. Um, so that was, that's kind of a program that we've, we've developed. But I think you're absolutely right. If I was sort of the, the under 12 second team coach in a little community club, I might call the high school coach or the local college coach and say, do you mind if I come down and be a fly on the wall? And I'm, I'm going to say that nine, I would guess it's way over 90 percent of the time the coach is going to say, sure. Yeah. If you, you know, it's not going to be a hard session or we're going to be doing this. Or we're going to be doing that. You're very welcome. Just let me know you're coming. I think I think there's a lot more people ready to pay it forward than than sometimes we would realize. I don't get to talk about it uh, a lot, but that's actually how I'm even hosting this podcast right now is, is my relationship with 343 started by me going down and, and just watching uh, Brian Clyburn train his team. At the time, they were, I want to say, 11 or 12 years old. And mm -hmm. I remember I remember getting to sit on the sideline with, sideline with Brian uh, during one of their games. And so I got a chance to see some of these guys that are now, you know, turning professional players, like uh, the name that's, that's becoming really popular right now, you know, Ephra and, and I think people would remember Shushu and, and Uli and Alex, like getting a chance to see those guys play at 11 and 12 years old, you know, up close and personal was an amazing experience. And I just, you know, kept knocking on that door and kept asking, Hey, can I come watch? Can I come watch? Or why'd you do this? Or what's happening here? And, and it eventually led to me, you know, becoming, I don't want to say part of the staff, but, you know, I'm, I'm indirectly involved now by hosting a podcast that's, that's, you know, involved with the company, which is, it's been an amazing uh -huh. experience. So sure. uh, I think uh, if, if there's, if there's one piece of advice that I give out the, the most, I think it's, it's probably that, that, you know, coaches, coaches should be beating down the door uh, of, you know, nearby coaches with that they can go and, and learn and network with. So, uh -huh. um, I I want to I want to ask you just just two more questions because I feel like you've been more than more than gracious with your time actually. Um, I'm just I'm struggling with which order I want to ask these two in, but I guess I'll I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with this one. Um, what are you most excited about at at this moment? Um, two things. Uh, one, I think, is probably a little bit. I'm really really excited by. In general, the MLS is a product, um, the quality of play, um, the development of the franchises, the attendance, the attendances. Um, I think MLS, 
I think MLS is on track for a great future and will be something we will be very proud of in this country um, over time. So I, that's sort of a macro level. At a micro level, um, conversations like this, uh, commercial training programs that do it properly, high schools, colleges, certainly U.S. soccer for sure, uh, my organization, when there is sincerity, uh, when there's sincerity in the action, um, we can make we can we can get to kids and we can make communities better using soccer as the vehicle. So not to say that church or drama or outdoor activities or whatever it is, I'm not, I'm not saying it's soccer is the magic uh, panacea, but if we do it well, and I think we have more people talking all the time about doing it well, uh, we can make, we can help make communities better. So those are the, you know, one end, the professional end, soccer, soccer, and at the other end, a little bit of a civic mindedness. And then my, my last question that I've been asking a lot of people lately is, and, you, and I want you to take this and, and, and run with it however, however you would like, but what do, what do people need to know right now? The people in general, people need to get a sense of personal perspective. So the reaction to Trinidad and Tobago was in, inevitably powerful at the time. Now we need to sit back and plan that doesn't happen again. Um, when you look at the MLS um, and the measured way it's developing, um, some of the successes in NWSL, although obviously they're a little bit slower, um, put them in perspective. Um, we are Americans, so we tend to want to run before we can walk. Um, and we tend not to do enough reflection. We tend to live in the moment. And what I'm really optimistic about is we have some really good things going um, and we need to savor the moment as we develop towards the future. So it's sort of a, I don't mean to be overly philosophical and, 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 and intangible to your audience, but I just think, I think if we all sit back, if everybody on the, on the podcast sat back and thought of moments of real genuine satisfaction and success they had in their career, in their soccer, in their personal relationships, it was when it was when they they approached it from a balanced point of view, put in effort, and then they got out the corresponding reward. And then they were able to sit back and think about it. And that's what I, you know, that's what we do with our ODP players. That's what I try to help young coaches with. Because I'm kind of at the end towards the end of my career. And I made every mistake there was to make uh, that didn't, you know, short of getting myself arrested um, and lost games I should have won and won games I shouldn't have won, but I won them maybe the way I didn't want to win them. And that was because I didn't have perspective. So I think uh, for me, um, the key to everything uh, as we get more and more experience is, is a better perspective of what we're doing. It's a beautiful answer, Ian. Um... I, mean, I, w I wish I could share the same excitement about MLS that you do, but maybe we can talk uh -huh. about that on a, on a separate podcast. <laughs> well, yeah. So I, I, it, I, I, I'm disappointed. There's not enough opportunities for young Americans. Um, I'm disappointed that um, we, I, I'm not quite sure about the, I think the American public is perhaps a little bit more sophisticated now than needs players who have passed their sell-by dates in other leagues, potentially. Um, and, this, you know, the quality of play is, is not. 
at the level of an English Premier League or a Serie A. Um, and, and, you know, Klinsman's argument about trying to get the players like Pulisic to go away, that's an interesting debate and that's a whole nother podcast show for sure. But I, we have to, if we want soccer to be good in this country, we have to continue to support our national teams, our professional leagues. NASL, I think, deserves a place. I think what's happening with them is a really interesting discussion right now. Um, but I think we all, we all, all of us should be continuing to try to find uh, the positive and the solutions um, and be uh, and be constructively critical, not just critical for the sake of it, for sure. Absolutely. It would be, I, I think it would be super interesting to, to, to kind of have like a round table or, or to, you know, hear what a round table might be like between people in, in, in positions like yours, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, director of United Soccer Coaching Education and, and maybe a, a U.S. soccer director is like, hey, like, Hey, let's let let's hear your opinions on what's happening with NASL, and just be open and oh. honest about it. Because I don't feel like those conversations are happening enough—the open and honest conversations. It's like you get a lot of uh, sound bites, I guess, or or quotes in in random articles from who knows who. But um, they're, they're, well, I think, the, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. No, because this is frustrating to me. Um, you either get people who are very tight-lipped for fear of committing themselves and or legal action and then the on the other side you get people who just spit stuff out on twitter or send you know open letters around the world and what you don't get enough of is debate so to to your point um at the convention we have a really difficult time asking people from different organizations to sit on a stage and do a q a even if we tell them what the topic is, we, we, like you did with me, are there any subjects off limits and do it completely professionally? There are, there are increasingly few people or few, there are fewer people that are willing to put their name to an opinion um, and represent their organization. Everybody's very guarded. And then again, then the, that, what that does is it gets on the other side, it gets people to be very outrageous and outspoken and suggest that everything is a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes um, you can't be surprised if people think you're conspiring if you don't share what you're thinking. And, um, you know, I think my organization's been guilty of that at times. Certainly U.S. soccer has and probably all the pro leagues have at different times um, been guilty of that. And, and uh, you know, whenever we can be more forthcoming as organizations and agencies and individuals, the better for sure. Well, I think you just proved for an hour that you guys are – uh, or that you yourself are an open book and you're willing to, to answer anything. Cause I, I don't even think that I officially started the interview. I just asked you, Hey, is there anything off limits? <laughs> and you started talking and we just kept going. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's, uh, if you, if you love the game, uh, it's not difficult to talk about it. Is it? We can do a, some other time, call me up about the world cup, call me up about the premier league, call me up about, uh, uh anything you want. Right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. And thank you to today's guest, Ian Barker, for being very gracious with his time and for being an open book and talking about 
and answering questions about pretty much anything that I asked. Uh, I know that I always say that I would you know, love to bring people back on the show, but I really do mean it with Ian, and I think that him and I could have a very good conversation and go even more in-depth on any of the topics we brought up today. And that's one of the more difficult parts about having an interview like this is that uh, when you talk to somebody for the first time, uh, you're still kind of getting to know the person and kind of feeling it out. And so uh, I would love to have Ian back on the show and I hope that you guys would uh, welcome him back with me. So if you would uh, like to find more information about this podcast and about the coaching education programs that we offer at 343, you can find all of that at 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343coaching, all spelled out, dot com. And here is Tom Beyer to talk a little bit about his experience with the 343 coaching education program that he put himself through. And I can tell you, after someone who's done a lot of coaches' education, both as a student as an instructor, that you will learn more by watching one or two of their videos that you might learn on any full-time course. Because the, the one thing that I liked about what they're presenting is, again, it's simplicity, man. It's very simple. It's not a lot of, you know, complicated words. It makes sense. And it goes right directly to the heart of, of, of the game on, on, on how, to, how to develop. Um, not just, you know, individual players, but develop teams as well. Once again, if you would like to learn more about these programs, you can visit 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343coaching, spelled out, dot com. All right. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you guys next time here on the 343 Podcast.